All right, let's. Uh, we're looking at page 34. Is that right? Is that where you? That's where I left off. 34. Do you have the same page number I did? 34. Yeah. Okay. Why don't we have a word of prayer and then we'll begin? Father, thank you again this evening for the opportunity to study the Word of God in the Book of Acts, and we pray as we wind down this first section of Acts, you will give us clear understanding as much as we are able to, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to understand the meaning of the text and also the application of it to our own lives in the church age we live in now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at Acts 11. We kind of finished up Acts 10 last time. Remember, that was the the conversion of Cornelius. And... uh, this is really sort of Luke's uh, explanation of Acts 1-8 in a sense. Remember he talked about Jesus says there as he gives the Great Commission in Acts 1, they're to take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, which they did, but then Samaria, and that uh, wasn't really the apostles who did that. That was one of these deacons, we say, one of these men chosen in Acts chapter 6, remember, um, that was uh, Philip. And then uh, now we do see Cornelius uh, in Acts chapter 10, and that is Peter, one of the apostles who takes the gospel to him. And so Jesus said, Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. Well, we're at least we're getting to the Gentiles. Now, this fellow is not exactly a full Gentile because he's what we call, remember, a God-fearer. He's a, one of these Gentiles. He's not Jewish, ethnically, but he's a Gentile who goes to the synagogue, who believes in the God of Israel, who is sort of keeping the Mosaic law. So Jews would tolerate these kind of people. They, they, they accepted these kind of people to a certain extent. They wouldn't have gone into his house because he's a Gentile, but they allowed them to come to the synagogue and so forth. They were not circumcised, and they sort of kept the law. They weren't scrupulous. These these Gentiles, like Cornelius, didn't probably keep the food laws, you know. But they they believed in the Old Testament and understood what they could in the synagogues and so forth. And some of these people did become full proselytes. You could become a full proselyte to Judaism. But this man was not. He was simply a God-fearer. And we'll meet a number of these people in the book of Acts in the future. But it's a it's an important thing for Peter, you remember, because it takes him uh, a vision, it takes a special vision uh, from God to convince Peter that he should even go to the house of Cornelius, a man who is unclean by Jewish ceremonial law standards because he doesn't keep the food laws. And so Peter does, in fact, uh, go to Cornelius, and Cornelius is saved. And remember, we talked about last week how that he was saved just while Peter was preaching. While Peter was preaching, verse 40, was speaking these words. And these were the words of the gospel in verse 39 and following and so forth. 
While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For, how do they know the gift of the Holy Spirit is poured out? For, because, verse 46, they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. So they saw the same evidence. Remember, the purpose of tongues and these miraculous gifts are mainly authenticating gifts. They're mainly to, to authenticate the message and the messenger. And so this is proof to these Jews, they're amazed, that God is pouring out the Spirit on these uncircumcised Gentiles. That's, that means they must be accepted. They must somehow be accepted uh, in some way, shape, or fashion. And then Peter says, well, no one can stand in the way of them being baptized, you know, completing the, the Great Commission commandment. For they've received the Holy Spirit just as we have, just like we did on the day of Pentecost. So in order to be baptized. And then, then uh, they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So Peter does for a few days. Um, Peter, Peter is here in Caesarea as we saw. Um, and uh, now Peter comes back to Jerusalem. He stayed with them for a few days. Then the apostles and believers, chapter 11, through Judea, heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So Peter went up to Jerusalem. So we see the response of the Jerusalem church in chapter 11, verses 1 through 18 here. So news reaches Jerusalem before Peter gets there, a few days before. He stays, and the news comes back. Now, Peter had six brethren with him. He had six Jewish believers with him. So Peter stays. Maybe they come back, obviously, to Jerusalem earlier than Peter. And so throughout Judea, they heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. And when Peter goes to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, so Peter comes and we see the, we see the, uh, um, sorry, yeah, we see uh, the uh, response of the church here. These circumcised believers said, you went into the house of the uncircumcised and men and ate with them. Um, so these are called circumcised believers. Um, these are Jewish people who are believers. And they said, you have gone into the house of these uncircumcised men and as I say here, they assume, that is, these people assume, that the Gentiles would have to observe the Mosaic law, including the food laws. That is, if Gentiles that have become genuine followers of Christ, the Gentiles must have become like Jews. And we've talked about this issue, this transition. We see it even in the Gospels, that there's a transition from the Jewish Old Covenant, from the Israel at the forefront, and the Old Covenant, the Old Dispensation, to this new dispensation, which began on Pentecost, but it's unclear to most of these people exactly what all that means. We said in Mark, we looked at that verse in Mark where Jesus said, Mark says, by this saying, Jesus said all foods are clean. 
But Peter didn't pick that up back there, and he didn't pick that up when Jesus was talking about that. I, I can understand that. It's, it's very difficult. Je- Jesus was a Jew. He didn't really say much to overthrow the Old Testament law. He didn't get up and say, now listen, now that I, when he, when he, when he was raised from the dead, as far as we know, he instructed them for 40 days, but we don't know that he said, now listen, don't go to the temple anymore because they did go to the temple, you know? And they taught in the temple. And these and, and sacrifices are still being offered. So it, there's a transition here in the in the Gospels and the book of Acts, a transition from from the old dispensation, the old covenant, to the new dispensation of the church. And all that takes time to work out. And a lot of this is worked out by the Apostle Paul. But we see the beginning of it. Remember, we, we saw Stephen and his ministry and how he was said to be speaking against the law and the temple and so forth. And remember, we said he was trying to emphasize that, okay, you, you can't you can't put Jesus under these. Jesus is above these things. And the message of Christ, the gospel, has takes precedence over the, the land, the law, and the temple. So that hasn't worked its way through yet. That hasn't been figured out yet, what all this means. Uh, they think they have to become Jews, just like they always did in the Old Testament. If a person was saved before the coming of Christ, they had to accept the Mosaic law, become like Jews. That was the way to please God. That was the proper way to be a believer. So uh, this is a new situation. Now apparently Cornelius is accepted because he receives the Holy Spirit and now Peter baptizes him. Peter seems to be saying, you know, it's not important anymore to observe the Mosaic law and the food laws. So, starting from the beginning, verse 4, Peter told the whole story. He says, I was in the city of Joppa praying. Remember we said this is a very important advert, uh, passage. This is very important to, to Luke because he has, chapter 10 is all about this, and now he's going to have Peter just repeat the whole thing again. Chapter 10 here, the first part, just, Peter's just going to repeat what we already know. He's going to tell the story again. I was in the city of Joppa praying in a trance, and I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied as you men would, as you people would. Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me. So this wasn't just Peter. Peter had six other Jewish believers with him. These six brothers that are right here now also went with me and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send the Joppa for Simon who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. That's Pentecost. 
Then I remembered what the Lord had said. This is Acts chapter 1. What the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they were baptized with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the beginning of the church. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, same gift he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I to think that I could withstand stand in God's way? I quote here from Kent's commentary. He has a good little summary here. Let me read that. Peter explained the facts which had occurred. Luke obviously regarded this experience with Cornelius as a pivotal point in the history of the church inasmuch as he repeats much of the material from the previous chapter. By rehearsing the incident with considerable detail, Peter made it clear that this extension of the gospel to a Gentile was not some idea of his own to enlarge the church, but was God's doing from beginning to end. God had provided a vision for Peter. He had sent an angel to Cornelius, and he had sent the Holy Spirit upon the Gentiles in the same fashion as upon the Jewish believers at Pentecost. It was not a matter of questionable tactics on the part of the apostle. It was God's own action. And it was Peter. And who was Peter that he could stand in God's way? As Peter says here in chapter 11 and verse 17. So verse 18, when they heard this, they had no further objections, these Jewish believers in Jerusalem, and praised God, saying, so then even the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. I note here on verse 18, although the gore of the gospel had been opened to the Gentiles, Jewish believers did not take this as a precedent for direct outreach to the Gentiles. And many questions remain unanswered. They didn't form... Again, a mission society and said, okay, if God's opened the door to the Gentiles, let's go to Rome. Let's go to Antioch. Let's go, you know, let's go to all these other places now. They didn't. So there were still questions. For example, what lifestyle was appropriate for Gentiles? We're still keeping the law, and we don't really know that we're not supposed to keep the law. These Jewish believers in Jerusalem are keeping the law. The temple is still here. We don't really know at this point, that we're not supposed to. We almost have like two different religions here. We've got the Gentile Christianity and the Jewish Christianity. Well, that can't really exist. There's only one Christianity. Judaism will have to give way, but it wasn't perfectly clear at this point. What was the appropriate lifestyle? How exactly could Gentile believers relate to Jewish Christians who at this time were still keeping the Mosaic Law? How should the Jerusalem church relate in practice to these new Gentile believers it had in theory accepted. So these matters are not settled here. They come up again in Acts chapter 15. There's a crisis develops in Acts chapter 15 after Paul goes out and preaches on his first missionary journey in Acts 13 to 14 to really what I would say maybe call pagan Gentiles. I'm not using that word in the sense that these Gentiles, like Cornelius, were Gentiles who at least believed in the God of Judaism, who went to the synagogue. But when Paul goes out on his missionary journeys, first out to Cyprus, and then to Galatia, in Antioch of Pisidia, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, he's preaching to people who don't know 
a thing about the Old Testament at all. They're just pagan Roman polytheists, you know. So they have no loyalty to Judaism in any sense, and he is preaching to them, and they're accepted. That creates a real controversy in the church. It's one thing to say, okay, we'll accept Cornelius here, but it's another thing to accept these other Gentiles. Because that's what you know what it means. If if God accept, is accepting these Gentiles in Antioch, of Pisidia, and Derby and Lystra and Iconium, and they don't have any temple, they're not offering any sacrifices, then you know, what does that say about us? It's there's a real, real conflict here. So that will, that, that will wait to be settled. So even though they say here, I know what they say, they had no further objections. One wonders if that's really totally true in the sense of Acts 15. When we get there, they do have some objections. This comes up again because Paul, of course, uh, goes out on these missionary journeys and it says in Acts 15, 1, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Because these, these people from Jerusalem were coming to Antioch and saying, you Gentiles have got to keep the law and be circumcised. Well, that means Paul's all these people supposedly saved on his first missionary journey, are not really saved, you know. They're not really right with God at all because they haven't. They're not doing these kind of things. So this is not settled here. It's settled for the moment. They accept Cornelius. They accept what Peter says. But we have, I think, still an unsettled situation here. Well, let's look at the church at, uh, at Antioch of Syria. 1119 through 30 here. The founding of the church, first of all. This is an important church, as we know, because this will be the this will be the uh, sending church, if we could say that, for the Apostle Paul. Paul will leave that church and go on his missionary journey, first one with Barnabas and so forth. But he's always coming back to that church every visit all of his journeys, you know, he's coming back to Antioch each time. So this is this is an important church. And now we see how this church was founded or established. It says in verse 19, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading a word the word only among the Jews. Now this is looking back, as I say here, to Acts chapter 8. You remember Acts chapter 8? This is after the stoning of Stephen. Saul is there. He's part of this group that murders Stephen. And it says in verse 1, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And it says in verse 4, And those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So this is part of the, this situation, the scattering of, of Christians from Jerusalem because of the persecution now of Christians in Jerusalem by the Sanhedrin. So those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out traveled uh, as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. 
So these people, some went to Cyprus here, some went to Phoenicia, Tyre and Sidon up here, and some went up to Antioch. Um, as I say here, Antioch, let's talk about Antioch just for a second, because as I say it is a very important place. Um, I say it's the largest of 16 cities of that name. Antioch is on the Orontes River and located in what is now southeastern Turkey. Because Antiochus was a popular name for kings in the Seleucid dynasty, there were many Antiochs. Antioch in Syria was at this time the capital of the Roman province of Syria. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome, and Alexandria with a population several hundred thousand, of which about 25,000 were Jewish. Um, so here is uh, Antioch, our modern Antioch. Uh, modern, modern Antioch is Antakeia. That is the city of Antakeia. It is built on top of modern Antioch. So we're looking uh, south from the north. So uh, we're up here, north of Antioch, and we're looking south here. And uh, we're looking south on looking at the northern end of the Levant. The Levant is a is a geographical term, and it describes this area here from Syria north all the way down Jordan. I found a map on Google kind of shows the Levant. These, these would be the countries that would be part of the Levant. The Levant is a historical term that's been used for many, many years. Uh, to just, it's a historical term used to describe uh, this, particular, uh, this particular region of Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, right down to Egypt. This, is a, this has been a well-thought-out fault fought after, fought out, fought about, fought after peace. I hit the uh, uh, land all down through the years. Everybody was interested in kind of conquering this particular territory. And uh, so the Levant is a historical term. It comes up, you know, in this modern debate about ISIS versus ISIL. And here you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. How that uh, the president, he calls it ISIL. <laughs> and most other people call it ISIS. ISIS. So ISIS stands for the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. The Islamist State in Iraq and Syria. And this stands for the Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant. So they're talking about all this area here. So there's a question about exactly how to translate the Arabic here word. The Arabic word that's translated Levant here, uh, it's thought that the Arabic word does refer to this entire area. So probably in a technical historical sense, you know, L, the L, Levant, is probably correct. Is it because they want Jerusalem? Yes. Fucking Israel. That's where the politics gets involved here, because uh, at least you know it's hard to know what the politics are exactly. But so the Islamic State, they want all this territory. They they want Iraq, 
and they want all this. They're claiming all that for that caliphate. So they've established a caliphate, a kingdom, and so they're claiming all that territory as their territory. Um, they're only in Iraq and Syria, Syria, you know, in a sense. They're only in Iraq and Syria. And so some people use the term ISIS because they're just in Iraq and Syria. And then there's the political dialogue back and forth. Some people say the president uses ISIL because he doesn't want to use the word Syria. He doesn't want to sort of admit that they're in Syria, they're entrenched in Syria, because that would mean his policies are failing. That's that's one reason why some would say he doesn't use the term. He doesn't want to use that term. It's hard to know. I mean, in a sense, as I said, the Levant is the, probably a better term to describe what they're claiming. They're claiming they want all that territory. They want, as you say, they want Jerusalem. They want everything. They're claiming that is their whole caliphate, and that's their plan to take it all eventually, you know. So there's, you know, political back and forth about those terms. But the Levant is a historical, been used before all this ever came up. I mean, I can, ever since I've been a Christian, I've heard this term used, and it's used in all kinds of historical textbooks to describe this area as a historical region. So here is uh, Antioch here, looking uh, south. We're looking at the north end. There's not much to see as far from an archaeological standpoint. Princeton University did some archaeological digging in the 1930s, but since then no one has really been allowed to do much there. You know, you just can't. <laughs> well, there's a war now, but I mean, even even before then, it's, it's pretty tough to, to do much. They won't allow much. So here it is from the south. You're looking north here, those mountains on the west. It's in a valley. It's in a very fertile valley here. Here's the Orontes River in Antioch from the south. And I said this is called Antioch or Antioch on the Orontes. And uh, as I mentioned here, uh, Antioch, there's actually about 16 cities named Antioch. Later, Later in the book of Acts, when we come to Acts chapter 13, Paul goes into what the Bible calls Antioch of Pisidia which is, the city is an ethnic name. It's in the province, Roman province of Galatia. There's another Antioch, so there's a different Antioch. This is the major Antioch. And so as I said here, it got this name because of the Seleucids. When Alexander the Great conquered the world, he conquered all this area. He conquered the Levant. He conquered Syria. He conquered Iraq. He had it all, you know, right down to India. And when, his, when, his, when he died, his kingdom was divided up into basically four parts. And the people who controlled the Levant originally were called the Seleucids. And they established a kingdom and a dynasty there. And their name, they're, they're you know, like in, in England, the queen is a member of the House of Windsor, right? That's the House of Windsor. It used to be a German name, but remember, they changed it during the First War because... The, the royal, the royal house of Britain is mostly German. You know, Queen Victoria and her husband was a German. They have these all the all the royal families of Europe are kind of tied together anyway. You know, but they changed it. It was Habsburg something or another. They changed it because of the German sounding. They were fighting Germany in World War One, so they changed it to the House of Windsor. But 
Antioch is just a, a royal name, a name. So there's a lot of cities named Antioch, and this is the primary one, Antioch on the Orontes. So it's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem here. Um, and it has it has a river, and this river, uh, I don't know if we saw on the map there, uh, there is a harbor here, Seleucia. And later we'll see that Paul leaves from Seleucia to travel to Cyprus in Acts chapter 13 on his first missionary journey. So here's the city. There's a river that goes down to Seleucia here, the Orontes River, and that's where Paul takes off from. So Antioch was a, a very important city, founded about 300 B.C. It was also on what's called the Silk Road. Remember from from earliest times, from before the time of Christ, this this part of, of the world, and then later Western Europe traveled. Uh, they they traded with with China, they traded with the, with the, with the East, and they brought back silk. That's why it's called the Silk Road. And they brought back silk. The Romans traded, brought back back silk. Uh, silk was silk was. Uh, uh, it, it cost a lot to buy that silk in China. The Romans, in fact, the Romans got so upset about the buying of silk that they tried to stop Roman Romans from buying silk. <laughs> they tried to say one way. One way they tried to say it was it's too sheer. It's it's it reveals too much, and so it's really immoral to buy silk. You know, but the reason they didn't want to is because Romans were spending all their money. There was a transfer of wealth. Their goal was leaving Rome, buying all these things from the Orient, from the East, and so forth. Rome didn't really ever produce much. It, it was just, you know, capturing land, territory, capturing other people's money, and spending that, you know, and so forth. So it was really an important city, founded by uh, the Seleucid ruler uh, in 300 BC, as I said. And uh, the the uh, Seleucids encouraged Jews to move there, actually. So there was a lot, when I said there was a large Jewish population there, uh, there was. It was uh, uh, 25,000 is the estimate, Jews who lived there. Jews have lived in the Middle East there, you know, and Jews have lived there to this day. They're, you know, they're facing persecution just like the Christians are too. You know, even today, it's a difficult time to be there and have been mostly run out. But the Romans came in in 64 B.C., and they took over, you know, this part of the world, captured this part of the world in 64 B.C. Pompey, the Roman general, came in and uh, became part of the Roman Empire. Uh, and then when Herod the Great became king, he actually, uh, he actually spent money beautifying Antioch. There, I mean, you, hear, you read these stories uh, in Josephus and so forth that he... He spent money to pave the main street with marble. This was to please the Romans. Uh, Herod the Great was a vassal of the Roman Empire, of the Roman Emperor Augustus. He looked to him, and so this was quite an important city. And so there was a large Jewish presence there, and eventually becomes a tremendous Christian center, even after the New Testament times. In the year 100, 200, 300, 400, it's a large Christian center uh, of Christianity throughout the, the years there. Um, 
So we'll, we'll see more about Antioch as we go along. Verse 20. Some of them, now forget the context here, some men traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, we're told here, men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Some people from Cyprus and Cyrene here, North Africa, uh, began to speak to, to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Now this creates a little bit of a problem for us here when the text says that some of these people came from Cyprus and Cyrene. They went to Antioch and they began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. Who exactly were these Greeks? I say here, Hellenistic Jews from Cyprus and Cyrene proclaimed the gospel to, I put in quotation marks there, Greeks at Antioch. The exact identity of these people is unclear. Though they were Gentiles, it does not appear that they were pagan Gentiles who were wholly unconnected with Judaism and the synagogue. Remember I said that there were about 25,000 Jews there, so there was a lot of Jewish synagogue and so forth. Now, why do I say that? The reason for this, why do I say they weren't just contacting pagan Gentiles like the Apostle Paul did? The reason for this is because Luke clearly presents Paul's first missionary journey and Acts 13 and 14 is something new and unique as far as the advance of the gospel is concerned. He sees Paul's mission as the first direct outreach of the gospel <coughs> excuse me, to Gentiles apart from the ministrations of Judaism. In other words, Paul's first missionary journey is in Acts 13. It ends in Acts 14. And if you read what it says... I'm going to read verse 14, verse 26. From Atalaya, they sailed back to Antioch. So in Acts 13, they leave from Antioch, remember? And in Acts 14, they sail back to Antioch. And what does it say? They sail back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Well, Luke, didn't you? <laughs> haven't you read what you wrote in, the, in these previous chapters here? You've been talking about the gospel going to Cornelius and now the gospel going to these Gentiles at Antioch. What, what are you talking about here? Paul opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So... Uh, the best way to try to reconcile that is to say that Cornelius, though he was a Gentile, was a God-fearer. And probably these people who came from Cyrene and Cyprus and went to Antioch, they spoke among Gentiles. It's probably people like Cornelius, we would think. People who were associated with the synagogue, maybe not just pagan Gentiles. That's what I'm suggesting here as a possible way to reconcile those two ideas. Um, so verse uh, sorry let's get back to verse uh, uh, chapter 11 here so verse uh, 21 the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord 
news of this reached the church in Jerusalem. And this is kind of sad in a way, isn't it? I mean, when you think about it, I keep thinking about it. Jesus has given this commission, you know, go and take the gospel, you know, but <laughs> the gospel, they, they, they get the news in Jerusalem. This is the church that should be sending out people, you know, you think, you know, we would think, you know. But no, they're getting news. They, the, that, that, that reached the Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch to find out what's going on. So Barnabas comes from Jerusalem about 300 miles up to Antioch. That would be quite a journey, wouldn't it? To find out what's going on. As I say here on the bottom of page 35, the Jerusalem church had sent Peter and John to check on the new work in Samaria. Chapter 8, verse 14. And now Barnabas was sent to the new work in Antioch. So he didn't establish the church. The church seemed to have already got going by these other believers. Some sort of church, an infant church was going. But obviously, it, you know, it didn't seem to have, uh, maybe they didn't have, as we'll see, they didn't have a lot of teaching, a lot of experienced teaching or anything. And so they send Barnabas to check this out. Verse 23. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So this growth of the church, this evangelization of the church continued on here, didn't it? I mean, becoming a Barnabas, he didn't, he, he spurred this on. Here was a man who had some experience probably maybe more than these others did. When Barnabas, then Barnabas went to Tarsus, uh, verse 25. Barnabas goes over to Tarsus. There's Tarsus. Now, I don't know how he got there. I put him by land, but actually he wouldn't have went this exactly. That's the top of the mountains there, you know. If he went, he went along the coast here, which you can do. But he could have taken a ship and sailed over to Tarsus, too. The text doesn't tell us exactly how he got to Tarsus. Um, he went to look for Tarsus. And I say here, this would have been about A.D. 44 or 45. Thus, Paul had been in Tarsus for about seven or eight years. So, remember the last time that uh, we saw the Apostle Paul was when? Acts chapter 9. Uh, Acts chapter 9 and verse 30. Paul had come to Jerusalem, remember? And he uh, <coughs> says in verse 30, when the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So Paul was in Jerusalem, went to Caesarea, he goes to Tarsus, and he's been in Tarsus ever since Acts chapter 9, apparently, and verse 30. So this would be about seven or eight years Paul is in Tarsus. And I said before, I think it may be likely that Paul is evangelizing that area. The reason I say that is because um, when Paul and Barnabas go on their first missionary journey, they go to Cyprus, and then they come up here into this area. They come into Pisidia down in here, and they come right down to Derby right here and stop. They don't go. They stop and backtrack. 
So it may be that that area, Paul feels like, has been fish, you know, uh, evangelized enough. Now Luke just doesn't tell us anything. Now later he says he talks about the churches there in Cilicia. Later we'll see a reference to the churches there. There are churches there. So it could be that Paul has established some churches there already. Luke just doesn't tell us anything about it. He wants to tell us about Antioch and what happened there. So here's the Apostle Paul. Here's Paul. Barnabas knows him quite well, remember? Because uh, Barnabas had been the one who had brought him to the apostles. Remember, Paul was this persecutor of the church. And remember in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, this is when uh, Paul comes to Jerusalem three years after his conversion. And uh, Barnabas says, uh, I mean, this is, I'm sorry, Ananias, I'm sorry. Uh, This is Ananias saying, God saying to Ananias, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. So he's the apostle to the Gentiles. But remember, Barnabas is the one who brings him to the apostles when when he comes in verse 27. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and so forth. Um, he's called the apostle to the Gentiles. Later, Paul himself, when he's recounting his conversion experience in Acts 26, he he says the same thing, or at least he, t- he says what God, what Jesus told him when he met him on the Damascus Road there. He says, uh, Jesus says to Paul in Acts 26, 16, Now get up on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see and will see of me. I will rescue from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes. And in Romans 11, 13, Paul uses that phrase again. He says, I am the apostle to the Gentiles. So Barnabas obviously knew this. And here is a church that's basically going to be a Gentile church, mainly a Gentile church. And so he goes and gets Paul. Verse 26 of chapter 11. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. We have now the first use of the term Christian here. They're called Christians at Antioch. Um, I say here, it's sometimes said that this name was given to the believers by unbelievers with the idea of ridiculing them. This is this is a fairly common viewpoint. Uh, you'll hear, you might, I've heard preaching on this, uh, preachers who have preached this, uh, Dr. Rice preached this at <laughs> Tender City. Uh, and uh, others have preached this. Good friends of mine have preached this. But this is just a... I, I, I don't, I've never quite seen that exactly. Why it is that... Uh, but you'll, let's look at the verses and we'll see what you think about that. But some people believe that this name was given to Christians by unbelievers as a way of ridiculing them. So let's see what, what the evidence is. That I say there is no evidence to indicate who coined the name, whether believers themselves or outsiders. So that we don't we don't really know from any text in Scripture 
who coined that name. None of the biblical texts tell us that. Whether it's, it just says here that the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch, but it doesn't say whether they took that name themselves or whether outsiders took them. But the view that I'm trying to refute here, in a nice kind of way, is that <laughs> is that it wasn't unbelievers necessarily who gave them this name as a, as a derisive kind of thing. Uh, also. Neither this nor its other two uses in the New Testament clearly indicate a derogatory sense. Uh, I don't think so, at least. Now, in Acts chapter 26, let me turn over there and take a look at Acts chapter 26. It's mainly the first Peter text, I think, we get that from. But this is Paul after his third missionary journey when he's been arrested in Jerusalem and brought as a prisoner to Caesarea. And he appears before Felix and Festus, two Roman governors, and here he's before Festus and King Agrippa. And uh, he's appearing before King Agrippa, and he's giving his testimony, he's telling what's happened to him and so forth. And... uh, and Festus says, uh, you're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. Paul says, verse 25, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. Verse 26, the king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa, this is Herod Agrippa II, we'll talk about him, Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? So, uh, you know, one idea here is that um, Paul is... um, that that he's saying this in a derogatory sense. Do you think you can persuade me to be a Christian? A Christian? Well, I I mean, I, I know he looks at Christians in a derogatory way, but I'm not sure that the term itself, you know, that the, the term means has a bad idea, you know. There are terms that have a negative connotation in themselves. Unfortunately, we just can't use any today, you know. Are there any, I was trying to think of one I could use. Is there any Polish people here? Polish? Any Polish? You know the term Polak, right? I suppose that's a derogatory term, is it? Is Polak kind of derogatory? I suppose it is. So there are terms that in themselves, you know, are derogatory, right? And so we don't generally use those, uh, refrain from using those. But I don't know that Christian itself, Christian just means a follower of Christ. That's what it means, follower of Christ. I'm not sure the term itself is in itself derogatory. The other passage is 1 Peter 4.16. Peter says, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed but praise God that you bear that name. Maybe we should look at the, the context a little more there than just uh, that verse. Um, he says, If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or as any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler, but if you suffer as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, do not be ashamed. So again, I, I just don't... Uh, Anyway, I've never been particularly persuaded that 
the term itself was given to Christians by outsiders as a way of humiliating them, as a derogatory term, like some of these other terms, the one I just mentioned, is used to humiliate people of certain ethnic groups or religious groups or something like that, you know. So I'm not convinced on that. But it does show here clearly that a distinction is being drawn between Judaism and the followers of Christ. Uh, that's pretty clear. The, the believers here are called Christians first at Antioch. So up until this time, believers are associated with Judaism. And certainly the believers at Jerusalem seem to think of themselves as still Jews, as, you know, still true believers in Judaism of the Old Testament of Moses and the law and all that kind of thing. But now we see that there's clearly a distinction. Now, this is ultimately going to be a problem because uh, in in uh, Rome, since they just Rome, in any government except the United States government, until recent times, you just couldn't. There was no freedom of religion. I mean, okay, England. There was no freedom of religion in England until recent times, very recent times. And uh, if you were a Roman Catholic, you were you, you were you you weren't a full citizen. You couldn't hold any public office. Up until about 1820, you couldn't be in Parliament, you couldn't hold an office, you couldn't, you were persecuted, really. So, uh, there was no religious liberty in any of these countries, and uh, there wasn't in the Roman Empire. So, Roman, you had to outwardly at least subscribe to the pagan religion, to the gods, to to, uh, to, uh, Zeus or uh, the Roman Jupiter and so forth. Uh, Jews had been given a kind of an exemption by Rome. They had Romans had had so much trouble with the Jews. They had fought them, battled them, but then they had taken Herod under their wing, and so they had uh, Ju- Ju- Judea had become a client state. But now they accepted Judaism. They allowed it to be practiced. Now they still discriminated against Jews. They didn't like Jews, but they didn't. They, it wasn't illegal religion. And so Christianity is flying under the banner of Judaism for the first number of years. And we'll see even later in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul uh, is able to escape some persecution in Acts chapter 18 because the, the Roman governor there, Gallio, sees Christianity as sort of a sect of Judaism still. And therefore, it's not an illegal kind of situation. But the distinction is coming here. And pretty soon they'll lose that uh, that that that. Uh, it starts with Nero, his persecution, and then builds throughout the Roman next couple hundred years. So, uh, verse twenty-seven, we have the famine relief for Jerusalem. Uh, Eleven twenty-seven through thirty. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread throughout the entire world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. As I say here about prophets, these are New Testament prophets. These are people who have the gift of prophecy, the gift, the prophetic gift. 
And this included both prediction of the future as well as exhortation based upon previous revelation. And so here's Agabus, who had this gift of prophecy. He could predict the future. He predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. This is the Emperor Claudius. Uh, 41 to 54, we'll talk more about him uh, later because we'll be talking about Herod Agrippa here. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, we're talking about Josephus uh, here quite a bit because most of our secular history or history outside the Bible comes from Josephus. He mentions the famine in AD 46, so that's about right. That's about the right time period here. This would be around something like that during that time period. So Claudius 41 to 54, Emperor Claudius, and uh, clearly there's a famine here. So he, he predicts there's a famine. The disciples, as each was one was able, these are the disciples here in Antioch, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So uh, they send Barnabas and Saul from Antioch down to Jerusalem. Uh, this is uh, what's often called the famine relief visit. I mean, I was, we're talking about visits of the Apostle Paul. We talked about his first visit, you know, already, Acts chapter 9. We did a lot of talking about Galatians chapter 1. Well, this is his second visit, Acts chapter 11, which corresponds to Galatians chapter 2. Paul says... In Galatians 2, after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem again. So this is his second visit, Galatians 2, 1 through 10, Acts chapter 11. As I say, often called the famine relief visit, which took place around A.D. 46. <coughs> now what prompted these, uh, the church at Antioch to decide to help Judea is unclear. Luke doesn't say in the text exactly what happened. Maybe the prophecy of Agabus revealed that Judea would be hard hit. Now we do see, a, we do see they seem to have a, a lot of difficulties there because Paul is later on collecting money to help the churches there in Judea and so forth on his missionary journeys. We'll see that. So maybe this prophecy revealed that Judea would be particularly hard hit. Anyway, they're going to raise some money here or raise some help, whatever that is. I assume it's mainly monetary that they can transport, uh, and they send it by Barnabas and Saul. Why is he still called Saul at this point? Well, because that's his name. Saul is his Hebrew name. Uh, so, I don't know if you were here, we, we talked uh, in a previous lesson, we'll talk, maybe we'll talk about it again, that Paul as a Roman citizen would have had a threefold name. A uh, if you remember, we talked about a uh, trinomen. Remember that? A nomen and a cognomen. And Paul's cognomen is Paulos. Um, or Paul. We don't know what his family name is. This would be like Combs here. 
like Bill. But because he was a Jew, he always had a, he had another name called a supernomen, or a Hebrew name. So he had a Roman name because he was a Roman citizen. Because he was a Jew, his parents would give him a Hebrew name. And so he's going by Saul here. He's still sort of in Jewish territory, ministering to Jews. Apparently Luke changes that when he gets to pure Gentile territory in Acts 13. It seems to be the reason. But he had this name Saul and the name Paul from the moment of his birth, from the time he was born. So uh, they sent this, and this brings us to chapter 12, divine intervention on the behalf of the Jerusalem church, chapter 12, verses 1 through 23, and we will pick that up next time. Yes, sir. Just that last verse of uh, chapter 11 there, I noted that uh, in uh, looking at the book of Acts, that uh, as far as pastoral leadership, except for the apostles in, in the Jerusalem church and only in the Jerusalem church, that the primary and predominant term for pastoral leadership is <laughs> Right. Yes. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. We'll see you next week, Lord willing.